This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we're going to interview Jay Martin. Jay is a real estate investor in the Bay Area, and he started with buying multifamily units in Oakland while working a full-time day job. Now he runs a successful Airbnb business and spends most of the year living out of a suitcase around the world. He'll share his methods for choosing great Airbnb locations, as well as how to find great VAs to run your business while you relax on the beach. Enjoy. So yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how you get into real estate. So my name is Jay Martin. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area after the Central Coast. And how I got into real estate, basically, I was, after the, I got out of school during the economic crisis, I started in bank regulation. Uh, the short story is that we would review a lot of real estate loans in that job. And so I got, saw people lose a lot of money in real estate and then saw people making some. And at that point, I eventually joined biggerpockets.com and kind of started educating myself and networking and bought my first fourplex with an FHA loan. So that's kind of the, the shortened summary. Interesting. You want to go a little bit more about how did you get that deal and you know, why did you buy that property? Yeah, of course. Um, it actually it sort of goes to the property before that. But before I started networking more, I was looking for um, a loft for myself. There was these beautiful lofts in Oakland, California, actually in West Oakland. Uh, the prices were really cheap, just over $100,000. And it was right around then, and I always would get back to networking because I think it's so important, but I was networking and that's when I found out that FHA loans could be used for up to four units. So before that, I didn't realize that I could actually leverage my money a lot more into an investment property rather than just a primary residence for myself, uh, but I could still live in my own apartment. So once I found that out, that's when I really started looking for fourplexes. Um, so that was, that was the first part that kind of just, I guess, got me off what I thought was possible and into looking for something that was a better investment property for me for the long term. Um, so that's kind of the process that got me there. And if you want, I can talk a little bit more about the individual deal and what I was looking for and things like that. Yeah, sounds good. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Um, I'm a big believer in the economic cycle, um, and it affects real estate in different ways during each cycle. It's never exactly the same. Um, forget who it was that said, um, like, you know, the economic cycles or uh, recessions, uh, they don't, they're not always exactly the same, but they rhyme, uh, something like that. And so what I saw is that real estate had gotten pounded and especially lower end areas. So lower income areas in the Bay Area, that was Oakland, Richmond, um, out in Stockton, Merced. These areas had been beaten down really low. And at the time, they were producing a lot of cash flow, which is kind of hard to find in the Bay. I talked to real estate investors who had been best investing for decades, and they said, you know, you can't really get great cash flow in the Bay a lot of the time. So when these things were producing great cash flow and they were at rock bottom prices that I thought would have to revert at some point, uh, that's when I decided to focus in on Oakland and Richmond. Um, Unfortunately, the story about finding this is not quite as exciting as nowadays, because when I bought my first property, this was actually New Year's Eve 2012. So for those of you who have been in the market for at least since then, uh, you may have known back then there was still, especially in Oakland and Richmond, a lot of foreclosures on market. 
Um, so this particular property I bought and another one, actually another fourplex I bought from HomePath. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar, but basically HomePath um, took a bunch of the properties that were foreclosed. So Fannie Mae guaranteed all these loans. They went bad. They bought them back from the banks, foreclosed on a bunch of them and sold the properties. Um, so that first one they gave homeowners or owner occupants, I should say, um, kind of a first chance to offer for the first 10 days. And so that's how I got my property. It was on market. It was a listing on the MLS and it was a foreclosure uh, from Fannie Mae sold by HomePath. Nice. Yeah. And then how did you go from the first one to the next one? Uh, the first one to the next one. Um, so actually, I'd kind of reached out um, to some people in my circle about potentially investing in, you know, real estate. And I was, I was doing my first one and they're kind of skeptical. Um, this is still when people said, like, real estate's never going to come back. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I bought my first one. I started making really good money, actually, on my first one. And there were still deals out there. Um, so I reached out again, and um, this person was a little bit more receptive this time. They kind of saw what I had done. Um, I had bought a totally vacant fourplex, and we you know, had fixed it up um, with the help of some friends, family, handyman, this and that. Um, got it working. Uh, so the next one, again, actually on market, there were two houses for sale in Richmond for $245,000. Uh, so that's two, two for 245. And I mean, you couldn't find a house under $300,000 today, but at the time that's what was going on. So what I did was partner up um, actually with a family member who was interested in deploying some capital. And I don't know, you know, how everyone else is structuring their deals. I think it's, it's different for different folks. Um, I, I don't know if people you've interviewed, have you heard any specific? Like in terms of breakdown? Popular, for popular way to structure. You're yeah, the money the guy and holds. you're the acquisitions guy. Yeah. Well, in this case, you know, we, I was basically going to do all the work and this person was going to be a little bit more passive. Um, so part of the thing um, is I didn't have a ton of money and this person had more, right? Which is pretty common when you have kind of a more active and more passive investor. So what I had done is I had enough money for another FHA 3.5% down. And what I was looking for is either I can go do another FHA deal at some point, or I can partner up with someone if I don't have to spend too much more than that. So what I did is we got a loan from a bank, um, which covered 80% in this case, because they were single family homes. So now between the two of us, we needed to come up with 20%. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do the deal 50-50. So that 10% and 10% down payment, plus some extra money that we need to come up with for operations, um, ended up breaking up like this. I wanted to put 3.5% down, but I needed to cover 10% plus a little bit extra cash. So what I did is I borrowed that 6.5%, 7-8% and change uh, from my partner in a note. So I paid them... I think on the very first deal, I think it was about 7%. So regardless of whether or not the property performed, I was going to pay 7% annualized on this note on a quarterly basis. So they were going to be getting payments no matter what the property did. And then as the property succeeds more, creates more cash flow, goes up in value, they would get 50% of all that value in addition to the quarterly payments on the note. Um, so that's how I structured my second deal so that I could put down an FHA like down payment but still get 50% equity in the project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really smart. Like, like you're asking, I think the only person I know who does buy and holds with partnerships is he does it in like Chicago. He says, all right, 
you give me all the money, you take care of all the all the costs, and I'll do the operations mm. part, and I'll just get twenty percent of the project. You guys get eighty oh, okay. percent. Yeah, yeah, and I think I've seen everything from the active person or that person, you know, doing zero percent down and getting up to fifty percent of the deal mm-hmm. to the twenty percent that you're referring to right now. And in my case, I'm still putting up money. Um, I don't, you know, and there's then there's all the way on the other side, right, where people might put in the exact same amount of money and go 50-50 and that may be split, um, you know, different ways between those two people, depending how they work it out. And I think my, my biggest takeaway after talking to a lot of people, um, I'll say this, and maybe it rings true for some other people listening, is I used to be a little bit afraid of taking a bunch of money without giving exactly half of everything. And, you know, even in this deal, I borrowed my other half, even though I was going to be active. Um, instead of just, you know, giving the person a certain percentage of the deal. And I would say this, number one, there are a lot of people out there that are looking for investments to get into real estate. Yields are really low all over the market. And what's really important to your investors or, you know, anyone investing in a deal or that you're partnering up with, um, number one, that you're going to operate it correctly. Um, but the real big thing is what are they going to get for the risk that they are taking in the deal? Right. I mean, that's how every investment works. And I think depending on how much cash flow and how much potential ability there is to force appreciation in the deal, um, the more juice there is in the squeeze and the more there is to share with investors and still get a, a plenty for yourself. Um, I'll be honest, at the time when I first got started, these, this, um, these other two houses, they had a vacant house also that we could improve and rent for more money and then eventually get higher rents on the other uh, house too. But a lot of this, we were doing this because the market was just so depressed and we could get good cash flow. The original projections were not necessarily to, you know, do some blowout transition of the property or necessarily counting future appreciation as part of the significant returns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that case, we were coming to the table just a little bit more, hey, this is a great investment. Let's put it together. Um, I'll, I'll just give it a different example with partnerships. The typical syndication structure, which, for example, I just invested um, a bit ago in a multifamily deal with uh, Ben Lepovich and uh, Sam Grooms out in Phoenix. And a pretty typical uh, syndication structure is, um, you know, the investors put up the majority of money, the passive investors, the general partners put in a little bit, um, and then they're going to get the guarantee, not guarantee, but there's a preferential return of 8% to the investors first. And then after that gets achieved, it's a 70% 30 split. So while the general partners are putting very little money, they're going to get 30% of the returns. Yep. Um, after the investors make theirs, you know, their first little part. And that almost is a little bit similar, I think, to what you were talking about in that Chicago, uh, that Chicago deal. Cool. So let's talk about what you're currently doing, because it's a little bit different than your typical buy and hold. Um, yeah. So what I've been up to more recently is my Airbnb business. So what I started doing there is... Well, first of all, just basically summarize the business. I basically rent quite a few apartments from other real estate investors that I know. And then I put furniture inside and sublease them on Airbnb, primarily for over 30 days. So, um, you know, it kind of started almost incidentally, uh, although I've been encouraged a long time uh, by Al Williamson, which he has a lot of great furnished rental info. Uh, But basically, I was in an apartment 
my landlord had another unit open that I wanted to move into that was a little bit bigger. And he just didn't want to rent out his old unit. So what I decided to do was just ask him if I could rent this other unit and keep the other one. And I would go ahead and rent it out to someone to take care of it for him. And so he was more than happy to oblige me on that. And he said, yeah, go ahead. Like, as long as you pay me the rent, I don't really care what you do with it. Um, so that's kind of how it kicked off from my, my first apartment, my, at least my first full new apartment. I had rented sort of a bedroom before that on Airbnb to kind of test it out. And that was the first time I got into renting a full another apartment on Airbnb. Cool. Can you go into more yeah. detail about how the whole thing works? Because I think a lot of people are very interested in this business. Yeah, you know, um, it's getting a lot more popular now. Not as many people have been doing it about four years ago. So there was a little bit less info out there. But I keep it pretty simple the way my business works. Um, I think a lot of people, there's a few questions that always pop up. One is always, why would a landlord rent to you instead of just doing it themselves? And number one is that most landlords don't want the kind of work that's involved with furnishing a place, checking Airbnb messages all the time, dealing with check-ins, check-outs, and all that stuff. Um, they rent it to me wise, mostly it's just because it's solving the problem of just, all they really want to do is get rent paid on time, not have vacancy, and not get a bunch of calls for maintenance and other problems. That's a great tenant by most people's standards. Um, so that's kind of what's going on, how it started originally with this, with this first landlord. And then as I told people about what I was doing, some other landlords started offering me units also. And these are people that I had networked with for years leading up to this point, which again, always a big fan of networking. Um, so at that point they said, oh, okay, yeah, you know, if you want to pay rent. And I said, Hey, you know, I can pre-sign a unit. If you have something coming available and you're fixing it up, you know, we can move in the day after you're done, you know, no vacancy, no problems, have a check in hand before, you know, you, without even having to put it on the market, without doing an open house, without making a Craigslist posting. Um, so I think that was really attractive for them. Um, so that's kind of the start, I think, is, you know, how are you going to get a landlord to do this? Uh, I will say, I mean, the step before that is doing a little bit of analysis. And I can talk more, you know, depending on what segment you want to talk about. But basically, you want to do some analysis first, see where it's going to work, start talking to some landlords in the area, um, or reach out directly on Craigslist. And, you know, then there's these series of steps to basically, you know, get furniture in inside, get it designed, get it up on Airbnb. Um, and then basically just start accepting guests. So there's a lot of different things that are involved in each of those different processes, but that's kind of the front to back of the business, right? Analysis, getting the unit, getting it furnished, getting it up on Airbnb, and then the ongoing operations and potentially, you know, the exit in the future. Cool. To think about it also. Yeah. So I have a question about, you know, getting furniture in and whatnot. How long does it take you to get a unit from a landlord? and then make it all look nice, and then put it back on Airbnb? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say this. First of all, most of our units are one bedrooms or studios. So we have some smaller units, and it's going to differ a lot if you have a three-bedroom, four-bedroom, five-bedroom house or something like that. I give my crew typically four days to set up a unit. So from the time it you know, is delivered to us with keys ready to move in, to the time the first Airbnb guest moves in should be no longer than four days for a one bedroom. Okay. And that's typically, you know, two people who are going to go out, purchase all the stuff, bring it over there, you know, set it all up, clean everything up, take everything away, put on the final touches. So it's ready to be moved in, you know, including all, you know, towels, linens, 
you know, kitchen stuff, everything basically so people can just bring in their suitcase. And you guys don't do any like extra remodeling, right, to make the place look better? So typically, no, although I will say that sometimes we will do an accent wall. So, so a lot wall. of, yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, typically when I do my unfurnished rentals or just my places in general, I, you know, I paint um, whatever, you know, do the standard, is it antique white and white, uh, coffee white trim, something, whatever all the landlords do. Um, but then I'll paint maybe one wall, the smallest wall in each room, especially if there's a window on it, usually like a, a light grayish color, something like that. Um, I feel like, you know, one thing we're trying to do is not just provide a furnished apartment, but a place that looks good and a place people want to live. And we do spend quite a bit of money on decorations. So that can be anything from, uh, you know, stuff that hangs on the wall, which we always have stuff on the wall, uh, you know, possibly some kind of like fake plants, you know, vases, almost like you were um, staging at home, right? Sure. And so what I've found is that even just an accent wall in the living room that we can paint you know, we might be able to paint it for, you know, including labor less than a hundred dollars. Um, cause you're not, you know, you don't have to tape a bunch of stuff. You don't have to do a lot. It's just doing that first, um, and letting it dry in the days when the furniture is getting assembled and installed. Um, you know, I just think it's a good kind of like value add for the cost and then we'll have to paint it back. Maybe if the landlord wants when we leave Makes at sense. some point. And your yeah. two guys are Buddies of yours, or how did you find your two crew members? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in my case, these people, um, it's been my handyman and one of his people. So I've been using him for a long time for a lot of other stuff. Frankly, they're like a handyman's not the best person to go to necessarily as furniture assembly. And I would say, especially for design, which I've done also. Oh, so you, um, you rely on them to pick out the stuff. <laughs> I have, I have before. Okay, got it. <laughs> Which I don't necessarily recommend. Well, I just told them they make it look like the other ones, you know, and make sure. it look like the other ones may mean different things to different people. Um, but yeah, so we use, I don't necessarily recommend this, you know, to be honest, our design is probably not the best. So there's probably a better way to pick stuff out. But the challenge that I will present to people who have a certain plan on how they want to do it we used to try to get stuff shipped because there's a lot of great stuff online at affordable prices and really great different styles. What we found is that it's number one, it's not always available. So if you want to go try to order the same thing six months from now or a year from now, you know, it could just be some cycle through of inventory or whatever it may be. Um, we wanted something that could be replicated for each place. So that was number one. Number two with shipping, even for places that did keep things in stock, like for example, on Amazon, we could find a lot of great furniture and a lot of great different things. But what we found is that all those things would be shipped on different dates. Mm. It was really, really difficult to find anything where they could package all up and just deliver it at once. Um, and then have that date somehow coincide with, you know, what the day we needed to be there. Um, so I don't have an extra garage right now just for keeping a unit's worth of furniture. Right. And I don't really have someone sitting around who can receive shipments on a daily basis and assemble them somewhere to be later transported to the property. And I'm not at the property because no one lives there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so those are the challenges that we face. We ended up using Ikea for everything. I know it's sad. Um, hey, but it looks good, right? <laughs> you know, people, people are okay with it. You know, at, at least it's that kind of... I don't, it's not really mid-century, but it's a lot of that, you know, that squarish type of stuff and the way it looks. If you pick the right stuff in there, I think it can be okay. 
people sort of know what it is. Again, I'm not the design guru, so I don't think I'm just, I guess, explaining why we did it is that it can be all like basically everything for every room, including the kitchen, including decorations, including furniture, you know, silverware, pots, pans, anything that's going to go on the wall, mirrors, bedding, um, you know, mattresses, bed frames. It's the only place I know where you can basically go and get all that stuff. And it's maybe, you know, at least not going to look like Walmart. Yep. Um, and you can get it in one day with one huge truck and directly transport it and get it all set up right then. So that's what we ended up using. Um, there are some other resources. I think Home Goods is pretty good for decorations. Um, I know people that will scout Craigslist for, you know, like a month leading up to it. And maybe someone's moving out and they have a whole house full of furniture that, that's really nice. And they're willing to part with for cheap if you transport. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it, especially if you want to save money when you're getting started out. You can go look for things like that, I think. But for me, I'm not using the country. I'm not going to spend time on it. Um, I don't really want someone else spending too much time on it. I just want them to get it done um, with something that's reasonable for our price point and for our customer base, which is not a luxury customer base. Right. Um, these aren't executive like suites or anything. Um, so that's what's worked for us, yeah. So yeah, how much does it usually cost for you to finish a unit like that? So for a one bedroom, including labor, I believe it's about sixty five hundred or seven thousand dollars. I believe about what is it? I think about it's a bit over a thousand dollars for labor because um, we're paying you know someone else to do take care of all that stuff. So all so about maybe... five to six thousand. Yeah, about five to six thousand for you know, all the, the physical things that go inside and maybe another thousand to 1500 for labor, okay. depending on what you use. Um, one of the other resources, I would say there are, we don't do furniture rentals, which would be very expensive to take in and out. And we don't use staging because we don't want to mess up the furniture. It's going to stay there for a long time. It might be expensive, but I will say that there are a lot of stagers and designer type people that may be willing to arrange this and get it set up for you. Um, there's also a few property managers that do furnished rentals that sometimes will do just set up for a certain fee. Um, and also, if you're really just looking for on-demand people and you're willing to pay a little bit more, I, I'd recommend looking at TaskRabbit. So maybe more people in the Bay Area know, but others might not know. It's basically on-demand labor, sort of like Uber. And... It's kind of expensive, but if you need a cleaner right away, if you need someone to assemble furniture right away, if you just need some additional help um, or, you know, you need your core help, that's a place that you can always go immediately to find labor rather than having to go back and forth on Craigslist or a hiring board or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And how yeah. do you uh, deal with clients coming in and out since you're not even in the country sometimes? Do they all have like automatic locks and... Yeah, so we're kind of in between on that. We have always an electronic lockbox on the front door. Um, I should say actually almost always, because some places have other gates and things where that doesn't work out. So the ideal way, in my mind, basically, is if all the doors have an electronic lock, preferably with additional Wi-Fi access. So you can actually change the codes remotely also. Um, if not that, at least something where they can access 
hopefully their unit and get in and out without keys is also nice. If not, then you just need to put it in a traditional lockbox somewhere on the exterior where they can access it um, and use traditional keys inside the lockbox, which is kind of the least ideal. Okay. Um, we actually started putting them on when the before the Wi-Fi stuff had really been tested out. So it was back in the day. So we do not use the Wi-Fi um, locks right now. But from what I understand, a lot of them work really well now. Some of them can be synced with Airbnb. So it'll automatically provide access to the correct person through email with the correct code. Oh, nice. Which is a, well, yeah, which is a great time saver. And I've heard a lot of people having success with that. So I think we might either switch over in the future or, you know, I would probably do that today if I was getting started today. Okay. And yeah. what is your current vacancy rate for your properties? So we rent out almost everything for over 30 days, uh, partially because of some restrictions on short-term rentals in the Bay Area. Some of the landlords just don't like it that we work with. Yeah. Um, and I think 2018 was, it was somewhere between 88 and 92%, but I can't remember exactly. But it's basically right around there, right around 90%, um, which has actually been pretty consistent uh, between this year and last year. There are reasons that that happens. For example, we rather lower our price a bit rather than have a bunch of vacancy and potentially also have to lower our price. So, um, again, we can operate successfully and profitably at what is typically considered a, a very high or pretty high vacancy or occupancy rate, I should say, for the industry. And this is you um, manually adjusting price your prices or is Airbnb automatically? This is, this is not me or Airbnb. So um, I don't think I mentioned this yet, but I have a team of people in the Philippines who manage the entire business. So I have a manager and then uh, two other people that work under her and they work on some of my other stuff too. But my manager actually adjusts all the prices. So we have really big on processes, procedures, and we have this process basically that they go through to look at comps in the area. So they're looking at comps on Airbnb rather than looking, for example, at like rental comps on Craigslist. Mm -hmm. But the process is pretty similar. Um, we're looking out there to see who's active, who has reviews, look at their calendar in the future, look how many reviews they have in the past. Um, and if they're active and priced, you know, a similar type of unit in our area, then we're going to be priced somewhere similar to them. Um, and we kind of price within certain percentiles of the market, depending on where we're at. Got it. So your VAs mm -hmm. are basically doing all the operations work because yes. they're gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And really, I set it up um, not originally to be this way, but I transformed it um, about a year or two ago. But yeah, I don't want to have to be involved. My ideal here was to be the owner of the business. And, you know, really the owner's job is just to collect profit and loss, you know, inject money if needed, hopefully never. Um, right now, I would say I'm more of a, a CEO slash chairman in that I just have weekly meetings with my manager. So we meet for an hour a week. We're not very good about it, but we, we're supposed to meet for an hour a week. And then I have a series of managerial reports and financial statements that I receive on mostly a monthly basis. But then we also have, for example, a report that tells us what's coming vacant and what is vacant. For like now, in the next seven days, 14, 30, 60, 90, 120. Mm -hmm. um, and that gets produced twice a week. And I'll peek at it maybe once a week or once every other week. Nice. And just kind of make sure nothing's going wrong that I need to actually take action. How did you find your VAs and how much are you paying them? Yes. Yeah, so um, originally I was finding VAs on Upwork.com, which was actually something else. Odesk, I think, before that. Um, but now I use onlinejobs.ph, which is a Philippines-based website, and it's only for Filipino workers. 
And basically, a lot of big companies use the Philippines. And the reason is most of them speak English. Some of them speak English very well. There's a huge customer service, like offshore base there already. So people are used to following scripts, following instructions, talking to people on the phone, providing customer service. Um, there's a big hospitality industry in the Philippines. So there's just a big core of people, uh, I think, that go there. Uh, we found ourselves hiring a lot of Filipinos on Upwork.com. Um, onlinejobs.ph, while there's a monthly subscription, it's a little bit cheaper over the long run. Okay. Um, so I think it's a little bit cheaper over the long run. And part of it is that Upwork is kind of targeting a higher price point overall and trying to move up market, whereas the Philippines is catering to the Philippines, which generally has a much more, is a reasonable cost basis. You mean like a Filipino um, um, business owners who want to hire other Filipinos or is that what you're saying? It's actually, it's Filipino. Well, so on onlinejobs.ph, it's Filipino workers who want to get hired generally by someone outside the United States. Got it. Um, whereas Upwork is targeting all over the world, including for example, the U S. So in my opinion, Upwork is trying to move up market and I think they've been raising their minimum wage Got it. to try to capture more of the kind of the developed market workers. So whereas onlinejobs.ph, uh, yeah, onlinejobs.ph, you're basically paying a subscription per person? Is that you pay a subscription, no, just for like a monthly fee. But they don't, once you hire them, you don't pay any percentage. Oh, okay, got you it. Know, you don't pay anything else. And you're hiring people, I think generally at, who are willing, like who are willing to work at more of a good local wage rate rather than the ever escalating rate established by Upwork. Sure. And what and is... I don't know all the stats on Upwork's thing, but like, for example, I think there's a lot of people in the Philippines that start in customer service roles at around $3 an hour, mm -hmm. $3, $3.50, $4 an hour. And I, I think on Upwork, the minimum is 4 or four fifty or something like that. Got it. So that's the start. And then anyone who like has any experience thinks they should get a, paid a lot more. I'm not criticizing, criticizing anyone on there, but... Um, just an example. So in the Philippines, one of, this is not my manager, but one of my, um, you know, like we all have a team member, someone who's doing a lot of our customer service work. She gets, I pay her $4 an hour. Plus they get a little bonus, you know, bonus at the end of the year and some other performance based stuff now, but she gets paid $4 an hour and she actually just built a house. Oh yeah. In the, in this Island on Cebu, um, which is a beautiful place. But, um, and you know, her husband makes, I think, a tiny fraction of what she makes. Um, so, you know, on that kind of income, you know, working full time, she was able to, you know, do something that, that I couldn't probably do in the Bay Area if, unless I was making, you know, $600,000 a year. Right. And not that that's a direct comparison to, you know, $4 an hour. But the point being that someone can provide, you know, a stable and good place, um, you know, homeownership for their family on wages around there. My manager gets paid uh, around $10 an hour. She's basically, she was partially raised in the U.S., but she's not a U.S. citizen. She's in the Philippines, um, but doesn't have as much of an accent, so can do better on a lot of the calls. Um, I think it develop a little bit more trust with people and, um, you know, kind of has those managerial capabilities. Sure. So I would say that's a pretty typical range. Some people start out at around three something an hour, um, but basically you want to kind of get them up to $4 an hour, which is a great wage there. And um, a lot of people also have kids. So for them, stay, being able to stay home with their family and work, you know, and make money without having to have uh, uh, childcare is, uh, 
a really great benefit in addition to the wage. And they're all on like 40 hour work weeks? Pretty much. I think actually, you know, it's a little bit variable and I kind of give them some flexibility as long as they get everything done. But most of them, I think, work about 30 hours and some change per week. Um, so they get paid for whatever hours they, they work, you know, in addition to some bonus stuff. Um, so it's not just like a full-time, you know, you get paid this flat amount. Sure. Um, there's some back and forth on that. We're trying to be a lot more results-based. But um, some people have said that, um, you know, basically if you pay a flat full-time wage, a lot of people will go out and get other jobs and just try to squeeze three or four full-time wages into a day. That's right. Um, so there's always a balance between all these different perspectives, but that's kind of worked for us so far, I think. Okay. Can we backtrack and talk about market analysis? So like, how do you yeah. know where I'm going to go to do my next Airbnb location? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, do you want to know what people should do or what they do? <laughs> hmm. Let's go, let's go with what they first? do first and then what okay, should they, what do. they do. Okay. So here's the most typical thing. Number one, where is the best market to do it? Um, the best market to do it was what people do is right wherever they're at. So pretty much, you know, if they live in XYZ city, they're going to go and just look wherever's nearest or, you know, within 10 minutes of where they're at. Why? I think the answer is because it's easy. They'll say, oh, it's because I know this area the best. Well, is knowing the area best really make it best for Airbnb or make it best for buying, you know, a house to flip or best for, you know, buying a long-term rental there? Um, Not necessarily, right? Just knowing that it is not not the best, right? So um, I think what it depends how far you want to go and what you want to do. Again, I'm out of the country most of the time. Um, there is some help in that I have had already established a network in the Bay Area, so it was easier to tap. But really, a lot of the people that I found, like my photographer that I used to shoot the take pictures of the unit, I found her on Craigslist. My cleaners that I now use for cleaning the unit, we like my actually my team found all these people um, on I think on Craigslist or on their website on a Google search or Yelp or something like that. Um, so really, you can establish a team wherever you want. And people have proven this in purchasing real estate and people have proven it in Airbnb. So if you really want to start with where's the best place to do it, the first options are all over the world. Hey, if you say, I know the United States best, and actually I do believe it's a good place to do it. Um, there's a couple things you can do. I would say one of the easiest is to look at airdna.com. So it's A-I-R-D-N-A, like the double helix stuff you're made out of. And what they have is some analysis. And basically what it is, is where are the lowest unfurnished one-year rents relative to the higher Airbnb rates? So, for example, there are some places, um, especially, um, surprisingly, in the South and other popular cities like, you know, A and B cities, where the base rents are actually really low. Um, You know, the population might not be growing hugely or something. But there are a lot of people coming into town either because it's a holiday destination or there's a lot of businesses going there maybe that are kind of, you know, attracting people who are just moving into town and might stay in the Airbnb for longer, this or that. But if you want to go really on the larger scale, the macro is where's the biggest spread between what you're going to pay and what you're going to receive, um, you know, given a, a somewhat similar expense structure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah. And I can go into a little bit more on kind of the micro and what we do, but I think 
number one, people need to see, you know, ask themselves, what business do I want to be in? You know, and then where should I be operating that business, especially if you want to do it remotely? Um, and then look for where the, you know, really where that's profitable and then get down to where within that market it's profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the way I did it, I did it right where I was. I was literally living there. <laughs> and what's the easiest way? I literally went down the hallway in the same building. <laughs> so again, it worked for me. I don't think it's the best approach, but I gave one example of um, the best way to find the best area to do it in. The other way is to really look around. There's Airbnb, Facebook groups. There's Airbnb like kind of training sessions. Um, I think just kind of poking around and talking to people, talking to people at your local RIA and see what's going on is a good way to kind of get a feel for what's going on in the market. Um, and then I can either answer qu- any questions about that or once you pick a market, there's some ways that you can dive into the individual comps right there to kind of see what works best. So would you recommend doing your strategy where you're doing like an Airbnb arbitrage where you're renting from someone and then renting it on Airbnb for that spread or is it better to just buy the property outright and then you can, instead of renting it to a full-time tenant, you do an Airbnb for maximum rents? Yeah, it's a good question because the things I was referring to just now are largely based on, you know, if, if you're going to rent it from someone else and sort of do this arbitrage thing. So you're going to pay someone rent, put furniture inside, rent it to someone else. Um, I also do, you know, Airbnb rentals with the properties that I own. So I own some properties in Oakland and Richmond that I've done an Airbnb on and still doing it in Richmond. Um, I think for that, you know, you're not really choosing the market at that point. I think you're, well, if you're starting with a property already, I would encourage you to look at this. How much are you getting already and how much do you pay in expenses versus how much you could potentially get on Airbnb and what those expenses would be? And is that additional estimated net profit worth, you know, the time and effort you're going to spend doing it? Mm-hmm. So that will differ. Um, if when we're talking about that, what, what I look at is to drill down a little bit more in the particular neighborhood. So you want to look at the overall area and at the neighborhood and basically do this first. Um, like many comps for many different types of properties, you basically want to find the ones that are most relevant for you. So first of all, um, for example, for me, I'm going to be running it out for over 30 days. And I happen to know that most people book about maybe, I think our average is about 17 days in advance, but sometimes up to a month in advance. So I put myself in the shoes of the user and I say, okay, I'm looking for like a studio or one bedroom, um, you know, not too far from Google. So down here in Mountain View, which is a lot of our customers down in that area. Um, What's available, you know, starting one month from now, what's available for a month? Or in your case, if it's a holiday rental or vacation rental, look for something two or three weeks from now and look for, you know, a weekend and then look for a weekday and see what it costs to stay there. And basically what you're doing is you're looking at, first of all, what's available. So when you first do that search, it's going to say in the top left corner, something like, you know, 67% of units have already been booked, book fast. So Airbnb is basically giving you some free data already on what's going on. Um, Once you see that, you can start looking at the, the individual properties around there and see what seems similar to yours. So if there's something that's priced at like $10,000 a night and it's a mansion, first of all, get rid of all the two plus bedrooms if you have a studio or one bedroom. Maybe keep the two bedrooms in and that'll give you an idea of the cap of what you're gonna get. Um, So now that you kind of have this market established, what we do uh, look at next is the listings with reviews. So you'll see there's a lot of listings on Airbnb, 
But a lot of them are people who basically like decided they wanted to do it, pop up the listing, and then never do anything about it. I feel like it's kind of like uh, beginning new, uh, new real estate investors. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they pop in, they're excited, they want to do it, they put up a post like, hey, you know, give me, I want everyone's email address. I'm a new wholesaler, you know, I'm going to blast you out. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to blast yep. you all out deals, right? And then you never hear from them again. No offense to any new real estate investors out there. I'm not trying to discourage you. It's just, you know, it really depends on how persistent and active you are. So in this example, you got to take out all of those listings with no reviews. Mm-hmm. They are not the market, right? Those are the wannabe people who have never done it. Uh, they could price at one, you know, $1 a night or $5 billion a night. If they have no reviews, no one's paid it. So it's not really a comp, right? Right. So once we identify the, the relevant units that have a significant number of reviews, usually we'll look for at least 10, but sometimes more is nice. What we're going to do then is a couple things. One, look at their availability calendar. When you scroll down the listing, you can say it's something like see their calendar. And so you can look in the future and see what is available and what is not available. That's going to be your first big clue about how booked up they are. And usually you'll see if their price is low relative to the market, they're going to be booked up for a long time. Mm-hmm. They might have some little gaps here and there, but they're going to be largely booked up. If you see people who are pricing very, very high, you'll usually see that there's quite a few gaps in their booking. Um, so already we have a few clues of what's going on, right? So we know, um, I'm sorry, we can basically see you know, what percent of listings are left available when we first log on. We can go look at their calendar and see what's going on. Now we can actually look at the individual reviews. So there's a few things I'm looking at when I'm looking at the reviews. Um, the first is the number of reviews. So generally, uh, people, about half of the people will leave a review, for example. So if they have 20 reviews, they've probably had at least 40 stays. So that's going to kind of give you some idea of their activity. Um, the next thing that I'm going to look at is, well, and this is what my team is going to look at, is what does it say in the reviews? So that's actually going to be a pretty good clue to what's going on because they may say, hey, I stayed here for a month while I was you know, going to the school next door or while I was working at Google. They may have said, there may be 10 in a row that said, oh, we had such an awesome time here on the weekends, you know, going to the aquarium next door, you know, down the street, or, you know, it was a great location because it was blah, blah, blah. But basically what you want to know is who's your demographic, who's staying there, why are they staying there, and if you can, how long they're staying there. And again, you know, if, if there's only a review like one every month, but it looks like they're, you know, getting booked up all the time with a bunch of different bookings, people are probably staying a little bit longer. Uh, but again, look in the specific text in there and you'll get a better idea. So once you get a few of those, what we have, what we do is we get at least four or five, I think six of them and lay it all out. Does it have parking? Is it a two, one bedroom, one bath? All the same features and amenities that we would do for an unfurnished rental. They put all the information into there. They find one that's a little bit better, usually higher priced. One that's a little bit shittier, that's usually lower priced. Those will be the minimum and maximum. And then they'll kind of price it somewhere in between those two within what's reasonable for the other two or three comps that are closest to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the front to back process. And whether you're trying to set prices or whether you're trying to go out and do comps to kind of see what's going on, you know, whether or not you might want to do an arbitrage sublet or purchase there, whatever it may be. um, That's the same process that you would go through to try to estimate that. So what kind of a spread are you looking for between like that average Airbnb price and your average rental price before you say, Um, I'm going to go into this market? 
there's a couple caveats here. So number one is that there's seasonality in almost every market. Sure. Um, and this is more true with furnished rentals. So you can ask around and you'll get a sense. Um, in the Bay Area, summer's always really busy. Winter kind of sucks. And then there's the shoulder seasons in between. Um, on average, I like to be pricing. You remember pricing is different than maybe what you're ultimately going to get on average. But pricing around $1,000 per month over what I call the baseline rent, which would be or base rent would be the unfurnished one-year rental that everyone's familiar with out in the, the regular real estate world. Mm-hmm. And that's going to give you some room for some price decreases. You're going to have a little bit of vacancy. And then you're, every month, right, you're going to have to pay your rent. You're going to have to pay your Wi-Fi. You're going to have to pay sometimes TV service. So we just do Netflix. And you're going to have to pay utilities is really your, your other big chunk. Mm-hmm. So that $1,000 spread, hopefully, we target about $500 net per month. Although realistically, after I pay my staff and everything else, it's probably closer to about three fifty ish to four hundred, depending on how things are going. Okay. Um, but that's kind of the process we follow. And again, these are with studios and one bedrooms. So if you have a big four bedroom house, or you have, you know, renting individual bedrooms or doing something like that, you'd want to kind of adjust accordingly, you know, for the kind of you know kind of scale you're taking on and the number of people and you know, operational overhead and stuff. So is that 100 a month? Is that assuming full occupancy for the month on an average, like Airbnb day? Well, if, uh, so $1,000 a month is what you should be pricing. Basically, you're able to price over the baseline rent. Right. But it's assuming then, 100% then, occupancy for the, for, the, for the month. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And gotcha. again, that's, that's just, again, it's ballparkish because that's going to give room for a little bit of vacancy and for this, you know, this and this and that. I will say that's what I use here, you're, you know, in the Bay Area for these smaller units. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot, if you go to vacation type places, the seasonality can swing a lot higher. Um, so it's, you know, it's a little bit harder to know what it's going to be in different, in different areas. Um, so I just want to kind of give that caution. Um, if I can give one more caution, actually, because you, you kind of asked me, but I didn't quite hit on it, is for me personally, I will not buy a property specifically for the purpose of furnished rentals. Mm. So to me, if the property doesn't already make sense to buy as an unfurnished, you know, regular rental, um, I don't think that it's a great idea to take that move and buy it based on these furnished rents. There's a couple of reasons. One laws can change and you may not be able to do it anymore. And now it's no longer a good investment and take, it's very expensive to get in and out of, and you don't know what the market's going to do. Right. Um, I think number two, you don't really know how the operations are going to be. So to go into, I mean, if it's a $20,000 house and that's, you know, fine with the money you have, maybe don't worry about it. But most $20,000 houses are probably not going to be a great Airbnb spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just really caution, I don't want to say against doing it, but I think you should really know your stuff. I have considered purchasing a property that I've already been operating for several years. So if you are going to arbitrage, try to get a purchase option at some price on the property. And maybe if you operate it for years and years and you know, you know, especially if you're doing it over 30 days and not subject to short-term rental regulations, you know, it might be nice to have the option to purchase the property, but I don't encourage people to purchase it based on that performance for the reasons mentioned before. And you just never know if you're really going to want to do it for how long, or if you're going to be able to find a property manager who can do it well for you. It's just not as standardized as the traditional furnished mar- or the unfurnished market. And that 30-day minimum rents, do you, is that like an option you set on Airbnb saying you have to rent this house for at least 30 days? 
Yeah, exactly. So there's always a, a minimum and a maximum number of days that you have any option to set what you'd like. Um, so we actually usually set it for 28. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason being is some people, you know, will just search, tw- you know, 20 to 29 days or 30 days um, in that in that area, even if they're booking one month or two months or three months or four months. Sure. So I would say even if you want, for example, like two month bookings, you still might want to put it at a minimum of you know, 28 days. So you can pick up the people who are just doing their initial search or something like that. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. And again, almost all of that is, again, almost all that occupancy that we're doing is on 30 plus days among about 20 units right now in Silicon Valley in the East Bay. So some people are surprised that there's enough people that are traveling like that, but um, it was almost shocking to me, but again, 20 units in the Bay area. um, So I'm sure in other areas, there's still that kind of demand also. Yeah. I mean, hotels cost like 400 bucks a night and they're booked. crazy yeah so compared to that Airbnb is nothing yeah and i mean that's that's one example of a way to kind of see what that potential spread is or the arbitrage or whatever it may be right is that if you know for example like in phoenix rents are pretty low where that's where i'm sitting right now visiting some family and went to a conference um but because it was a conference there was some big uh, world wrestling thing going on actually um the sheraton was like 300 something dollars a night Mm. And I don't know how frequent that is, but you can actually get reports of the local hotel rates and stuff too, um, you know, or the average nightly rate for the Phoenix Metro or something like that. And I mean, here's one example of where there might be some spread, right? Because there's rents that are six, seven, eight hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, but you could, you know, be running it out at a nightly rate. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, what are your plans for 2019? Uh, 2019. Um, the main things are the three things that I'm always kind of doing, uh, which is kind of traveling and some adventures, um, spending some time with friends and family and doing a little bit of volunteering and mentoring. Um, so I'm actually visiting family right now out in Phoenix and, uh, got to go see my, uh, the rest of my family during the, the Christmas break and all that. Um, heading out to the Canary Islands for right after the, this next summit I'm doing actually, uh, to go visit another real estate investor, learn how to surf. So a little bit of travel and a little bit of volunteering and mentoring. So I basically volunteer everywhere I go, um, but some sort of mentoring, teaching some stuff we're going to be doing um, at the SFA Summit actually coming up. So February 16th and 17th, 2019 in Oakland. Um, this is the fourth year actually we've been doing it. And we basically get a bunch of folks together from biggerpockets.com and some local folks from the Bay Area to uh, just share, educate each other, have some discussions, some networking, and kind of learn more about what we're doing and what's going on in the market right now. So um, that's coming up. And actually, we've got some good folks this year. Um, actually, the Bigger Pocket CEO is coming out, uh, Scott Trench. Oh, really? Along with, yeah, along with a lot of their authors. Um, so Jay Scott just released the new Estimating Rehab book, um, which he's an awesome business guy, too, a lot of economic stuff that he's into. Uh, Matt Faircloth is coming out too. He wrote the Raising Private Capital book. And uh, Dave Van Horn wrote the Notes book. And uh, we've got a lot of other great folks like Brian Burke, uh, Jay Heinrichs, who I think has 10,000 plus posts out there. And um, then a lot of local real estate investors who are doing a lot of different flipping, um, some notes, some multifamily investing. So that's kind of my, my pet project almost every year is to get all these folks together, um, do some networking, and, uh, you know, just have a good time too. 
Yeah, I've always um, looked forward to those events. They're like a lot of fun. And you definitely learn yeah. so much from doing it. It's crazy, you know. I mean, my big thing is always like, you know, if you can get one good idea or meet one good person to kind of change what you're doing or partner up with or bounce ideas off of or, you know, call when you have a question that you're not able to answer to get a deal closed. Um, those are the kind of people who are going to answer, you know, it's the people you've met in person, the people you've networked with. And again, you know, I wouldn't quite be where I am today if I wasn't able to network with all these people over the years. So, um, yeah, it's going on in Oakland. Um, people can check it out. We got a website. It's, um, SF Bay summit, 2019.com. So SFA summit, 2019.com. Um, I would say come out if you can in February, if you can't, just go to a local, you know, real estate meetup, just like, just like you have, Sean. Um, there's a bunch of, like, there's usually at least 10, you know, in every big market or something like that. Um, so I just encourage everyone to go out, meet some people, um, see what's going on. I'll be doing the same thing in 2019, even as I'm traveling around. Um, but that's, the, I think, the biggest thing that I can share. And hopefully, I think, you know, just hearing from the first time I purchased properties to, um, you know, my Airbnb business and partnering up with other landlords, uh, the summit, you know, obviously made a ton of connections there that have advanced my business. So just, um, yeah, for everyone out there, just network, 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 um, and then take some action, you know, and go get it done. Absolutely. I think, yeah, one thing is even like this, I mean, because people always have excuses like, oh, I don't know enough. Well, you can go educate yourself online. You know, I don't know people. You can go network. And even if you don't have money, right, you can find a deal, partner up with someone. You could do an Airbnb business like this where you can arbitrage, you know, someone else's, like OPM is other people's money. They call this OPP, other people's property. (laughs) Not the OPP like you know me, but, you know, again, there's always like, there's always something else out there to complement what you have. So I just, you know, want to make sure there's no people, no real estate investors out there who think, oh, I can't do it or I don't have this or I don't have that. You know, you can always do it. There's always somewhere that that matches the kind of yin to your yang. So, you know, speaking of uh, you know your base summit and networking events, how are you getting these big speakers to come speak at your events? You know, <laughs> I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but um, actually, the very first year, you know, I did it. Um, I didn't have any experience doing it, but I saw the need for people wanting to get together, especially folks from bigger pockets. And this is not a bigger pockets event. But uh, a lot of people come out, you know, from, from the, that website. And I actually called Brian Burke the very first time. And you know, you know how I got him to come? Nope. When, when I used to work, you know, yeah, that's why you're asking me the question. <laughs> so when I, I wasn't sure if you'd heard of this story before. But um, I, when I used to be in my W-2 job, I used to travel for work. And whenever I traveled for work, I would post a meetup on Bigger Pockets and say, hey, I'm going to be in the area for this weekend. So again, it all goes back to networking, right? I'm in the area for this weekend. If anyone wants to come out, just come meet me you know, at, this, at this place at this time. And then sometimes I would try to find some local investors and tag them on there. Or if I knew someone was in the area, I would do it, right? So I went up to Santa Rosa for work. I was staying at a hotel. I put it up. I tagged Brian Burke and I think a couple other people that I had just seen posting uh, or they were in the area or something. But I didn't know who he was actually. Um, so for those who don't know, Brian Burke is a huge multifamily syndicator and his business has flipped like hundreds of houses. But I, I, I went up there. I didn't know who he was. We all just chatted about real estate like this and this and that. And I kind of find out who he was at the, at the meeting. And I looked him up later and I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's a big shot. Like, <laughs> I had no idea. 
Um, but eventually, I think it was almost a year later, I was doing the summit and I, I remembered him. I said, I called him up and I said, Brian, hey, remember I met you at this meetup I posted in Santa Rosa, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, hey, yeah, I remember you. How's it going, Jay? And I said, hey, I'm, doing, I'm getting all these people together. I've never done this before. I'm still looking for a venue. <laughs> and, and I haven't sold any tickets. But I'd like you to come out to this event. I didn't actually pitch it like that. I was like, hey, I'm going to get everyone together. There's going to be a bunch of investors, you know, hopefully some investors that might want to, you know, interested in what you're doing. Maybe want to invest in multifamily syndications, right? What's in it for you? But also it's going to be a great time. And I'm like, and I'm going to call these other people that you might know and get them together too, you know. And he's like, how are you going to get them? And I'm like, well, I was hoping that you could introduce me. <laughs> well, I said, I said this. I said, who would you love to see there? you know <laughs> i'll call him up for you okay okay um but that was actually that was kind of the start and honestly once i got one person who was recognized all of a sudden the next person started coming and and then i said hey brian and uh you know eventually i got um uh brandon turner to come out and once i said brandon turner's coming out then everyone's like oh brandon turner's coming out like sure right but i think it's just like a podcast right you got to get that that one person leads you to the next person and you kind of leverage that name that first name, that's right? True. That's true. Um, so it was a little bit lucky that I had Brian, but it was only lucky because I was always networking everywhere I was going. And eventually, all that stuff adds up. And when you need something, you have people to reach out to. That's right. Um, it reminds me of just like asking for money for a deal or, um, you know, even for charity or whatever it may be, right? You don't just go ask people when you need something. You got to go out there, be helpful to people, network see what's going on. And then when you need something, they know who you are, mm -hmm. you know, rather than just starting that frantic search when you, you know, there's something on the table that you need from someone else. Yeah, so that's true. Yeah. It's a and good question cool. though. That's like, cool because, <laughs> because like I, I was traveling all the time to like other States uh, to look at different properties too. And it never occurred to me just host a meetup group when I'm there. Yeah. Like, hey, anyone there? Let's meet up. <laughs> You can post it on biggerpockets.com and you know, if you do it on bigger pockets, all you do is put the names of some local cities in there and it'll pop up on that person's keyword or search. Wow. You know, if they have like a notification for keywords on the forums or whatever. Um, so it'll pop up on there. And then the other thing is just check meetup.com. Meetup so meetup.com resource. Yeah. 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 And actually I think you can just, if you're a organizer on meetup.com, I think you can create a meetup group in another city. And I think it notifies local people or to pop up in their search if they're searching for a real estate meetup at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, the other one is Facebook. There's tons of real estate groups on Facebook and you can just create your own event on Facebook also. So I, I did it on bigger pockets because I like the people from there and they're kind of more open and sharing. Um, but Facebook and meetup.com are the other two resources that whatever city you're in now, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, if you're prospecting a new area, a new city, a new state, whatever, I would always encourage people to go on there, talk to some locals, people, even if they don't always like, you know, others coming to the market, there's always people willing to share and open up about what's going on and what's good and what's bad, and the ugly. Yep. Yep. Networking yep. is key. It's so important. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah. Cool. So do you have any other advice for people listening on the show? Oh, besides network, 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 um, I would say, uh eh. Be careful about the economy and, you know, just like who you work with. I mean, you don't really know what's going on with the economy. And I think you just got to take measured risks about, you know, how much you want to risk for how long and what you're doing. No one knows the future, but, you know, um, it's been going on for a while. And with who you work with, too. Um, 
you know, not, not everyone's is great. Not everyone's bad. Um, there's a lot of great people out there, but I think just do your due diligence, do your research and, um, you know, most importantly, enjoy your life, you know, align your businesses with what you want to do too, and align your time with what you want to do and the people you want to be with. Um, and don't just get too wrapped up in business stuff. Cause I think mostly among real estate investors, I just see people, you know, doing a hundred hours a week forever. Uh, but if you know what you want, um, you can establish, you know, how you want to get there and really make it happen. So, um, yeah, I think that's my, my last takeaway. Thanks. And how can people get in contact with you? Um, the best way to contact me is actually to go on Facebook, surprisingly enough, if anyone's using that anymore. Uh, my name's, it's just the letter J Thomas Martin. That's my first middle last name. Um, so you can find me on there or, um, there's a email address contact form also on the summit. Um, so if you're going, my, at least my event planner will notify me if I don't get your email. Um, so it's on sfbasesummit2019.com. Um, I'll be back in the Bay. So if you're there, send me a message or whatever. Um, if you're at the summit, I'll see you there for anyone out there. And I think I'll be seeing you too, hopefully, right? I'll be there. All right. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, if there's anything else I can help out with or whatever, people can just uh, ping me and I'll try to answer your questions. All right. Thanks a lot, Jay. Appreciate your time. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. Here are some of the key takeaways I got from talking to Jay. Market cycles are definitely a thing. So if it's at the bottom, it's probably a good time to get in. And likewise, if it's at the top, maybe don't put all your chips on the table. Airbnb arbitrage is a great way to get passive income and allows you to quickly scale your business without having to get a lot of money for down payments to purchase more properties. Hiring VAs has made the process extremely easy. So now he only works a few hours a week just to check on the status, but the VAs do most of the work. And networking is extremely key. You have to go to events and you have to meet new people. So if you're in the area, go to the SF Bay Summit. I've been going for three years and it's been a great time every single time. You meet with amazing investors who are willing to share the stories and their secrets. You can get tickets at sfbaysummit2019.com. It's on February 16th and 17th, and I hope to see you guys all there. Thanks, and take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N. R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.